the context again, for what it's worth, Paul has heard of their, their faith. This is a church that Paul has not uh, personally met. By the way, again, don't just believe me. Search the scripture. Let the Bible always have the final say. This is a church that Paul has not personally met. However, <coughs> Epaphras has been there sharing as he has. Um, a church has risen up in the Lycus Valley, both in Laodicea and a church in Colossae, and one uh, assumedly also in Hierapolis. Uh, Paul has not personally met these people. He is in prison at this point. It's roughly somewhere between 60 and 62 AD, but he has heard of their faith in Christ Jesus, love for all the saints, and the hope that is laid up uh, in him. And so he prays. And he prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, his pleasure in all spiritual understanding, that they would have a proper, agreeable, successful, teachable, overcoming, and really appreciative walk. From that, he wants to make sure that they have the right Jesus. Just saying you believe in Jesus means little unless you have the right one. The payment, the, the picture of the Father, the producer of all things, the purpose for our existence— preeminent in every way and perfectly God. That is the right Jesus that Paul makes sure of. He also wants to make sure we have the right relationship with him, that we were simply aliens and enemies in our mind to God, but yet Christ has reconciled us in the body of his flesh. He paid the price in death to reconcile us, even though he had done nothing wrong and we had done everything wrong. For the purpose of presenting us holy blameless and above reproach in his sight that Jesus has died for us to reconcile enemies to himself and he tells us that this is where we're going to be with the with Jesus standing with him holy blameless and above reproach in verse 23 then it says if indeed you continue in the faith now <laughs> without getting into some weird doctrinal dissertation on this it is imperative for us to recognize that whether you believe, you know, the moment you said yes to Christ, you will always be saved regardless or whether or not that hinges on your consistency. One thing's for sure, God doesn't want us in a place where we live this licentious lifestyle, assuming that God's just going to forgive everything and really not care. He wants us to be very concerned about abiding in him. And so regardless of where you stand on it, it is necessary to abide. Now, if you were to ask me, do, you, do I believe that the moment that God gave us salvation that we will retain it forever? Well, it tells us that it's the gift of God and that God's gifts are irrevocable. He doesn't take them back. However, if you are going to say yes to Jesus, why in the world would you ever want to walk away? And he tells us you need to stay in the faith. And what that tells us is there's a foreboding cloud that kind of comes in the distance, much like we have here in London, that you just know sooner or later that cloud is going to bring rain. The whole letter is going to challenge us not to move away. Now, the idea of this isn't just that we're going to just one day wake up and decide to no longer walk with Jesus. To do a U-turn, all you have to do is turn the wheel a little bit and let the car go long enough. Sooner or later, that car will turn around. And what he's going to tell us in the rest of this book is that there are many different ways to steer the car a little bit, just enough, so that we no longer really have the right Jesus. We no longer have the right relationship with Jesus. But instead, we've steered ourselves away from that to some place, to be honest, of making it about polit political religion and not about the relationship we had with him. And so he tells us, listen, you need to continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, not moved away. Now, understand, to move away takes very little. And that's why he wants to make sure we have the right Jesus and the right relationship with him. One where Jesus didn't need to help us. Jesus needed to rescue us. A big difference. Jesus isn't just an additive to our life to make it better. Jesus has to become our life. And he says, don't move away from that. And he'll ultimately tell us, don't move away from that by sin. Don't move away from that by philosophy. Don't move away from that by false knowledge. Don't move away from that by false system of works. There's a lot of different ways to move away from a simple and pure relationship with Jesus. Don't move away from it. 
but I want you grounded. And even as we read in the, first, in, the, in the verse that is on the outside of our bulletin, that he was planted in the house of the Lord. That's what God wants, is for us to be like Joshua, who would be in the tabernacle and just say, God, I just want to be here with you. I don't want to leave. But he says, and then, he's, and then Paul starts to speak about his relationship. And to be honest, in these verses, it is one of the seemingly hardest verses in all of Scripture because it seems like what Paul is saying is almost blasphemous. Look at it with me in Colossians chapter 1, again, in verse 23 for context. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and, ste- or grounded and steadfast, and are not new- moved away, notice, from the hope of the gospel... The hope means that that this when somebody tries to trick you out of this gospel into something else that they call a gospel, in its simplest sense, they're trying to trick you out of the gospel of hope for a hopeless gospel. The gospel we have is a gospel pregnant with hope, a gospel that speaks of a God who saved us from the penalty of our sin, is saving us from the power of that sin, and ultimately will save us from the very presence of sin. That is a hopeful gospel. We see the hope in the past. We see the hope in the present. We see the hope in the future. And when you get moved away from that to something intellectual, and not that this is stupid, it's just simple, so that every person can give their life to Christ. God wants even the simplest to respond to the gospel. And if he made it brilliant, they couldn't. If he made it about discipline, somebody lacking discipline would obviously have the outer circle on it. But he made it something so simple that we all have a level playing field. And that is that God wants us all to come humbly. But he doesn't want us moved away from the hope of the gospel, beloved, which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, I want you to recognize what is being spoken in verse 23. Because in verse 23, it shuts down some of the most common arguments to people about about Jesus being the only way. It also, by the way, slaps me in the face with a challenge. I've never been one to want second place. I've never even been one to want first place. In my house, I was raised with the idea, you don't win, you annihilate. That's the kind of mindset that I was raised with. If you were winning by three, win by ten. If you were, you know, I mean, if it's if I got three triples in a game, my dad would ask, how come you didn't stretch them into home runs? If you're going to run and try to get 20 yards, the idea is get it to the end zone. And in that, understand this says that the gospel has been preached to every creature under heaven. Now, either God is lying, either Paul is uninspired, or this is the truth. That's our only options. And if the Bible is, as we read in 2 Timothy 3.16, all that scripture, all scripture is breathed by God, then this is absolute truth. And if this is absolute truth, that means that every creature under heaven has had the gospel preached to them while Paul, at least to the point in which Paul is in prison, to note this. Now understand, Paul was put in prison between 60 and 62 AD, if, if at biggest 61 to 63 AD, he will be released because they have no legitimate charge on him. He will be caught again in 67 AD, where he will be relatively promptly executed in Rome by Nero, beheaded. Which means if Jesus died, and no matter how you want to argue it, between somewhere between 30 and 33 AD, and we can argue over dates and so forth, whether it's the April 14th date or whatever. The point is that even if Jesus died on January 1st in the year of 30 AD, which is at least earlier than any guess, <coughs> and Paul is now in prison in the 60s, that means that the entire world heard the gospel of Jesus Christ in 30 years without cell phones, without satellites, without big screen TVs, without texting, without Googles and giggles and wiggles and jiggles and whatever else is out there for you. The bottom line is, is that the gospel went forth without an airplane to throw a a big banner behind it, without billboards to paint upon, without TVs to have commercials. In 30 
years without airplanes to travel the world. The gospel was preached to every creature under heaven. And if it's every creature under heaven, that has to include every human being. Every human being. Now, whether that is Paul, whether that's the 12 disciples, or whether God sent angels from heaven to preach it, one thing is for sure. When Jesus rose again, God made every human being on the planet know it. What a radical thought. Something must have happened in these people that is different from the mindset today. Because today, we can see there's a vast part of the world that has never heard about Jesus And we are in what is called the information age. What an ironic thought that we can get. I mean, if we wanted to learn anything, we could turn to like the vast abyss of knowledge, Wikipedia, and get it on the Internet on our phones in the middle of a cave somewhere if we need to. And we could have it downloaded so we could find out just about anything on just about anyone or anything. And people ask, well, what about that person in China that's never heard about Jesus? What about that person in India that's never heard about Jesus? I could say, I can tell you that in the 60s AD, at latest 62 AD, every human being on the planet had heard the gospel. However, that was done. And we don't read here how that came about. We just know that it's a fact. Now, <coughs> Paul tells us at least how he has a relationship, excuse me, with this gospel. Notice it says in verse 23, and obviously we haven't gone quite far yet, of which I, Paul, have become a minister. Now, there are different words for minister. There are words like episkopos, which means overseer. There are words that speak of somebody being older, presbyteros. And by the way, that's often how you get the leadership of a church, is if it's episcopal, it's seen by a single overseer. If it's led by a group of elders, it's called Presbyterian. And that's just where we get those words from. They're Greek words. There is the word doulos. And a doulos is simply a hired or a a consigned servant. It is a word that is used in America, I don't know about here, of a woman that helps uh, women give birth. Um, They sort of assign and sort of help them through that. But a doulos, in its simple sense, is just a person who is a servant. They're, They're just a servant. They're a butler. They're a butler to whatever the case would be. And there is also the word diakonos, deacon we get the word from. And it comes from the word diakos, which simply means to run an errand. Interestingly enough, no word in scripture for minister speaks of a person with great authority or power or majesty. (coughs) Ironic, because there are people today that will say, well, I'm a minister. Don't mess with me. Look at all the clout I have. Ironic, because the words, every one of them, speak of a person that is really lowly on the totem pole. Somebody that actually is... At the bottom, the guy who washes your feet, the guy who grabs your bags, not the guy who tells other people what to do. And this particular word for Paul is saying that, that I became a minister is the word deacon. In other words, I became an errand runner. I became an errand runner to the gospel. I'm just a guy running errands. And the errand I'm running is the errand of handing out this gospel. Now notice... <coughs> that he tells us that it is the gospel that he's an errand runner to. It is not apologetics, with all due respect. It is not a thousand arguments, archaeological evidence, or philosophical approaches. It is not promoting his denomination. It is not promoting his quote-unquote movement or the way that he practices things at church, his liturgies, the things he does or doesn't do. It isn't a pet doctrine on whether or not you stand on this side or this side within the Christian fence. It's one thing and one thing alone. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. Paul has committed himself to be a servant, an errand runner of one thing. And that's what makes this so profound, beloved, is that God intended for everything within ministry to be simple. The complication comes at what we add to it. But to be honest, ministry is a very simple thing. The disciples knew this, according to Matthew chapter 4. If they could get a person to Jesus, he could fix them. 
It didn't matter what it was. They didn't have to discover the depth of their depravity. They didn't have to discover whether it was medical or emotional or spiritual that caused them to be so psychotic or whatever the case is. All we read is that these people brought people to Jesus and then Jesus healed them. That was it. What a simple ministry. And by the way, I hold to that. It doesn't matter how crazy, how lunatic, how outside, how bizarre a person is. If I can get them to Jesus, Jesus can fix them. That's the beauty of this. What we add to that complicates the simplicity of what God intended ministry to be. Paul is not an errand runner to a thousand things. He's an errand runner to one, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love that, by the way. Now, what about you? And by the way, I have learned this. That somewhere down the line, because we live in an information age and we've been so caught up in the apologetic movement of the last seven years here, that people feel so ill-equipped to share the gospel because they feel like they can't answer every question. The bottom line is there's only one question for which there is only one answer. What must I do to be saved? Everything finds its way there and everything answers the same and that's Jesus Christ. Now, for what it's worth, let me at least walk you through the gospel so that at least you know it, so you know what it is that is being shared. By the way, Paul tells us he is not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. It's that simple. It's God's power to save. We don't read that anything else is. We don't read our ability to argue. We don't read all of the miracles and smoke and mirrors and juggling poodles and being able to speak in a thousand languages. Nothing else is the power of salvation but one thing, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. So you want to see how difficult the gospel is? Turn with me, if you would, to, the, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1, it says this. Moreover, brothers, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you were saved. Notice it doesn't say by anything else or that and a thousand other things. This one thing is by which you were saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, Are you ready? Here we go. Number one, that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. Can you say, Jesus died for my sins according to Scripture? Okay, try it again. This time with some oomph. Jesus died for my sins according to Scripture. Your turn. Jesus died for my sins according to Scripture. Okay, awesome. Verse four. Number two, that he was buried. Your turn. Yeah, how is that? Pretty good so far? Because it's difficult. Does anyone have to figure out what that means? Jesus died for my sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. Number three, and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Your turn. He rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. There's your gospel. That's it. Did you get it? Was that difficult? Here we go. Number one, that Christ died for my sins according to scripture. Your turn. Second, he was buried. And he rose again according to Scripture. Okay, without me prompting you, without you looking, go ahead and tell me the gospel. Wow, sounds like you've learned the gospel. Do you realize what you now have in your hand is the power of God to salvation? There is not a person on the planet that can't be saved by that scripture. Because that scripture, according to the Bible, is the power of God to salvation. Do you know why people aren't getting saved today? Because people aren't preaching the gospel. There's a lot of other things we can share. I know what it's like to argue a person into a corner about a lot of issues. Have them agree with me in the end, but not get saved. Because to be honest, at the end of it all, I hadn't preached the gospel. What I had done was preached a bunch of issues 
for which at the end of it all, we could agree and they could go, okay, so do you want to accept Christ now? No, no, not at all. On the other side of it, I have watched individuals share that simple information with the most brilliant of men who have tried to argue in their brilliance only to find themselves fools in responding ultimately. Because here's the good news. According to John chapter 16, it is the Holy Spirit that convicts. Now listen, hear this out. When the Holy Spirit has come, he will convict, or same word as convince, the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Listen, beloved, it is not within your power nor your responsibility to convince anyone. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Praise God, the power is off of your shoulders. When you preach the gospel, the Holy Spirit goes with that gospel to convince people, to penetrate their hearts and to say, you know, that's true. I don't have to convince. And so when someone says, well, what about this? And what about that person? And what about that crazy person? And what about that guy on TV? Do you know, actually even saying, I don't know is okay. Because you don't have to win the argument to win the soul. The gospel is the power of salvation and the Holy Spirit is the one that convicts. I love that. What we are, are seed sowers. We throw the seed and according to 1 Corinthians, we're just nobodies. We throw the seed and water, but it is the Lord who brings the harvest. I'd like to challenge you with something today. Before we even go forward, because we're going to approach a heavy text here. If the, if the gospel is the power of salvation and the Holy Spirit is the one that convicts, preach the gospel, give a choice, and let the Lord do his work. Give him room. And I'd like to challenge you this week to preach the gospel to three people. Let them know there's a choice to be made. And then give God room. To say, look, did you know that Jesus died for your sins according to scripture? He was buried. And he rose again, according to scripture, on the third day, just like God promised. And you have a choice today. Will you accept Christ's payment on your behalf? And if they say no, I say, well, fair enough. No, you still have that choice. But to do that, you've done the greatest favor that individual could receive, giving them the grace and the love to let them know they have a choice to make and they're responsible to that choice whether they will accept the gift of Christ. And you say, well, well, I didn't bring in a lot of flannel graphs and, and 3D animations. And yeah, good. But you've allowed room for the Holy Spirit to do his work. Paul did not call himself a dealer, an administrator. And that word, by the way, Jesus will be used, the word oikonomos, the person who oversees a house to distribute all of the goods. Oikos means house. Namas means law. Paul calls himself an errand runner. An errand runner takes something, picks it up, and moves it somewhere else. That's what Paul was. And he goes, that's all I needed to do. The church was set on fire. People were lit up because they were delivering a very simple package. But at least they knew what they were delivering. And that was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I've become a minister to this gospel. And then he says in verse 24, And now I rejoice in my suffering for you and fill up in my flesh listen to this what is lacking in the afflictions of christ for the sake of his body which is the church and you have to say what paul you have the guts to say that there was something missing in the afflictions of christ for the church what could paul possibly mean to say that something was lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the church. Well, when we approach a difficult text, let me give you a couple challenges. One of the first things we do is we set logical limits. Not logical limits in the sense of we set limits and well, it can't possibly mean this because I think it's logical. But simply we set biblical limits. What does the Bible say clearly so we know it couldn't possibly mean that. Paul could not possibly have suffered for the salvation of the church. Because it tells us in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 26. That he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself once and for all. Jesus is all the sacrifice necessary to save every human being. 
Nobody else has to add to that. The gospel is a simple thing. It says Christ died for your sins according to scripture. Not Christ died for your sins according to scripture and Paul suffered too. So Paul could not be suffering for the purpose of a person's salvation per se. He couldn't also be suffering for the purpose of sanctifying them because that particular work, according to Romans 8, is done by the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that sets you apart from the moment that you accept Christ. According to Ephesians 1, verse 13, the moment you believed, God placed in you his Holy Spirit as a guarantee of your inheritance. And that Holy Spirit sets you apart. So clearly, Paul isn't suffering to set apart the church. So what is it that Paul means? I'm just setting logical or setting biblical boundaries. So what is it that it could possibly mean that Paul is then filling up on his body what appears to be lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the church? Well, I remind you, Paul has not just written this letter as a prison letter, but several others as well. For instance, the letter to the Philippians. And this is what Paul says in the letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, verse 17. Yes, if I am being poured out and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the service, sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. The church in Philippi was a very predominantly female church. It was a strongly feminine church. And by the way, the letter is the most feminine letter of all of Paul's letters. It is the one letter that speaks more of feelings than any other. He's telling a lot of women to get along, stop being catty with each other, get along and start acting like Christians with each other. But the primary thing is, in its simplest sense, yes, so I'm in prison. Stop freaking out. It's okay. It's a church full of women who are flipping out because Paul's in prison and they're just assuming the worst. Paul says, stop. It's the one letter he says more than any other. Rejoice. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Now, Paul knows to speak to the feminine heart. Sometimes to say rejoice once isn't enough. No, no. Listen. Now, I mean it for real. Rejoice. No, no, really. Rejoice. But a drink sacrifice. What a powerful thing for him to say. When a person offers a sacrifice, often that of a free will offering, nothing that is required Nothing that is expected, but rather this is something I want to do because I just love the Lord. And you lay that meat before the Lord on the fire and it rises up. And during that particular sacrifice, a person takes a cup of wine, strong wine, and pours it on the fire. And as he pours it on the fire, the fire becomes larger and the smoke becomes greater and the idea was to take that sacrifice and, and make it even stronger and to make it even more powerful and make it even more profound. The sacrifice was already being made, but this was to stoke the fire. And Paul says, I recognize my suffering is doing that for you right now. Clarifying that in Philippians chapter 1, Paul says this in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. First of all, Paul says, one of the cool things about being in prison is everyone recognizes I'm in prison for Jesus. Paul is one of those guys that appears to seem to find the bright side in just about everything. And I remind you, Philippi was the place where Paul was put in prison. God rocked the foundations of the prison and Paul was released. If there's a place that knows what it's like for Paul to be in prison, Philippi would be the place. But listen what he says beyond that. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become more confident in my chains, are much more bold to speak the word Without fear. Paul says, let me tell you one of the best things that has happened by being put in prison. By putting me in prison and by my suffering without backing down, without denying Christ. And the Romans were quick at eliciting confession. All Paul had to do was deny Christ and he could be released. 
And Paul says, listen, all of my suffering has gotten out to a thousand or a hundred thousand other believers who have been challenged and encouraged to become more bold at my example. And all of a sudden, I start to realize what Paul is saying when he says this, that I fill up in my body what is lacking. See, what Paul could, could offer that Jesus couldn't was simply a human being filled with God's Holy Spirit, not God in the flesh. You see, when we see Christ suffer and take it patiently, we could say, well, yeah, that's because you're God. Of course, you're going to be able to take it that way. And we could try to write it off as if somehow he has an, an, an advantage. We don't. But Paul, Paul's just a human being like us, filled with the Holy Spirit, just like we are, seeking to please God, just like we are. And Paul, on the other hand, is just one of us. And as Paul suffers for the gospel, we have an example of a person that can take it and keep going. It is always in any place where suffering is involved, takes one person to spark an entire team into action. And that's what Paul has to offer. And to be honest, that what is, is what lacking is what, what is lacking in the church today. Can you think of any person off the top of your head in the UK that is suffering violent persecution but is taking it patiently and with stride? The moment we start seeing such individuals, Paul would say, that kind of thing inspires us to action, to boldness. Let's be honest. If a person lit up with Jesus Christ, stood at the corner of Piccadilly Circus, or stood at Trafalgar Square, or stood down in Oxford Circus, someplace where there are many, many people, and just started to openly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, openly and boldly, he would not only be condemned by the unbelievers who would walk around there, but he would be condemned by believers, by churches who would say, you're blowing my rep. You're looking like a fool. You're looking like an idiot and you're, you're, you're cramping my style. There would be Christians and churches that would denounce that man's activity simply because what he would be being is bold and obvious. Now, I'm not telling you that God has called every one of us to stand on a street corner and preach. But if the Lord has called you to do it, do it. Who cares what other people say? Who cares if the complacent want to criticize? Who cares if the lost want to look and point? We saw an individual like this in Camden about a month and a half ago who stood right at the, at the bridge and just started to openly say, Jesus, Jesus. It looked crazy. <clears throat> but to be honest, I want, you, I want you to consider something. The European culture has made it, has been built now to make Christianity awkward. There is nothing about Christianity that doesn't feel awkward in this culture. Sharing with a person anything is awkward. Sharing Jesus is even more awkward. Praising God publicly is awkward. Opening up your Bible and reading it in public is awkward. The culture has made it awkward to be a full-on, Christ-loving, spirit-filled, excited Christian. Here's the best part. Many of us in this room, not all of us, but many of us are American. We are known for walking right into the awkward and cutting it and just saying something. That's part of, why can't we do that with Jesus then? Well, we want to appear more European. Then let's not appear European. I want to remind you, our citizenship is not the UK. Our citizenship is heaven. And if our citizenship is in heaven, we're going to be a bit strange anyways. And might I dare say then, we're going to be awkward. There was a gentleman, <coughs> bless his heart, I was at um, 
Yamcha on Tuesday, on Wednesday, and I was there early to prepare for the study on Wednesday night. And a gentleman comes on crutches with a good portion of one of his legs missing. And he sits down in front of me. I mean, I'm in one of those sort of window areas. And he just sits down in front of me. And of course, any individual at that moment, the first thing you think is obviously something, perhaps, at least it was for me, something about his leg. And I said, hey, let's just cut through the awkwardness. What happened to your leg? Were you born that way or did something happen? I said, let's just get it out of the way so we can talk like human beings from this point on. And he said it was blown off by a bomb in Northern Ireland 25 years ago. Now, immediately, there's all kinds of loaded statements with that. One, of course, Northern Ireland, that's between the Protestant and the Catholic, or so to speak. And so with that, though, we had no more awkwardness in regards to that area. And I, by the way, you know where I learned that from? Children. You know, and to be honest, when you watch the response of a person in a wheelchair, when a child comes up and says, why are you in that chair? Can I get one of those chairs? Is that fun? Could you, can you get out? Can I get in it? Can you wheel me around? There's something about that. You watch this relief by the person who's in the chair to say, thank you for actually not ignoring it. And in this culture, we seem to ignore people. We walk right by them. They could be falling all over themselves, spewing out their own whatever. They're just in, in throwing themselves in the throes of death. And we would walk around them like nothing was happening. People are used to that. And on the other side of it, it's something when a child would just walk up and say, hey, um, why, why is that? And then, and then from that point on, there's nothing left to discuss in that area. I mean, we've, we've not danced around it for an hour. It's done. Now imagine if we could see people spiritually and we'd see how, if you'll pardon me for saying, how crippled individuals are spiritually at the lack of Jesus. And to walk up them and say, hey, um, what puts you in that chair? How come you have that crutch? It's alcohol, it's sex, it's whatever. Well, how come you have that crutch? And a person will look and go, how dare you? And say, hey, I'm actually seeking to be a friend. You might be amazed at how many individuals will actually speak to you on that level once you just cut through it and say, hey, we may not have four hours to discuss this, so let's just go right for the throat. In our culture, people really don't want to see that at first socially, but individually they want it desperately. Now the buses, double-decker buses, when it gets cold out, tend to fog up. I've learned this. What's important to you is best displayed because every human being is an opportunist. And when we look for whatever it is in what area we look for opportunity in, opportunity in will show us what's important to us. When I get up to the second story of a double-decker bus and I see the entire front window fogged up, I look at that and I think, that's a billboard. And so it's common for me there to take that and to write on there something along the lines of, Jesus, God so loved the world, he died for your sins that if you trust in him, you could be made innocent, believe in him. And I will write it across the entire front so that any person that walks, and even when it fogs up, you know how it still is there. Once doing this with my family, they were in the front two rows, and we're writing this on the, on, the, uh, on the billboard, on the window. A British man is walking towards the steps to go down, looks at us now right behind us and says, of all things, how retarded. Of all the statements the man could make to us, retarded? That's his answer? There's a part of me that wanted to look around and, and say something from junior high, but I decided not to. But I realized just writing that statement irritated that man so much that he had to make a comment. And he obviously not even a comment that was intellectual or intelligent or anything like that. It was just a comment that was like, nah, 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 boo, boo. And I realized there's a statement my brother made a long time ago. It's an old Indian proverb. When you throw a rock in a pack of wild dogs, the one that barks the loudest is the one that's hit the hardest. And I couldn't help but think, you know what? That individual at that moment was being poked by the Holy Spirit and something had to fly out of his mouth. You know what's funny? 
is that night he had to go to sleep knowing there was still a choice to be made. There is, listen, there is something about being part of a person's testimony. And every one of us will be with every moment of boldness. Look at where are the people who are willing on the other side of a person willing to be persecuted for their faith is a person that spends their whole time protecting, protecting themselves. And let me tell you one of the places where that's come up, and I'm going to go right for the throat on this, giving the devil credit he doesn't deserve. How many times does the devil get credit for your illness, for whatever it is? In our house today, our alarms didn't go off. My iPhone, Trista's iPad or iPhone, David's iPad, none of them went off this morning. Our alarms, none of them went off. Now we could say, oh, that's Satan. Satan's trying to keep us and give us more sleep so we'll sleep past church. <laughs> but I want to remind you, if God is sovereign, the devil can't do anything without God's permission. Stop giving the devil credit. If you think the devil's always just waiting to make your life, to muck up your life in whatever way possible, you'll spend your whole life trying to protect yourself against him. But my good shepherd protects me, and he's in control. And if he allows it, it's to my better. There is nothing the Lord will allow that isn't for my better. And with that in mind, I have to stop trying to protect my family and my, myself and my rep and, and my pride. And I want to be bold for Jesus. And if that means that somebody wants to try to rough me up, I just pray that I don't kung fu them down to the ground and make them a bloody mess and say, that's, that's probably a bad article in The Guardian. I just want to represent Christ and take the shots if that's what's necessary. Because if nothing else, if there's someone willing to be that bold, other people will be ignited. They'll be ignited to be bold too. But if everybody is cowering under the blanket of hush, hush, sooner or later someone says that's not good, that's not going to work. 30 years, 30 years, people were so infected with Jesus Christ in 30 years, the world heard about Jesus. Because they were so infected, they became contagious. Well, then I want to be that infected. I want to be that infected that I become that contagious, that I become such a carrier. So he says then, I fill in my afflictions with it says, I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Listen, Paul, by the way, wasn't lacking afflictions. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul lists only a few of the things that he has experienced for following Christ. And I want to remind you, listen to this. When Paul was first saved and God sends a prophet over to, to Paul to lay hands on him so that he might receive his sight, and the man seeks to argue with God because he says, perhaps you haven't gotten the memo. This guy's a dangerous man. He's seeking to kill Christians. God says to this man, Ananias, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. God had already told Paul and would tell Paul, look at you are going to suffer, not because you owe me, but because the church wants to see what it's like to take it and get up and get back in the game. In American football, as much as it may be boring for many, you get hit. And there are people that exist. There are specific positions on the field specifically for laying you out. There was a period of time back in the late 70s and early 80s when the Oakland Raiders were known as the destruction team. Those guys were known for purposely hurting people. That was their job. And it worked. It worked so much that there were many teams that would drop the ball and fumble and just fall apart for fear of these men. As a matter of fact, there was an individual, I believe his last name was Tatum, that they hit so hard they permanently paralyzed the man from that day on. A book was written called They Call Me Assassin about it. Because they took a man in midair and hit him so hard that they literally fractured his spine and permanently paralyzed him. But there was one team 
and might I dare say it was the Chicago Bears that was going to go out there and they knew that getting hit was part of the game. And what they were determined to do was to get hit as much as they could and yet get up and show them that they could so that the rest of the team could recognize you could do this. There have been in every sport people that have done that. Back in the days of Muhammad Ali, and not that I'm condoning violence by any means, there was a man who claimed to be a super strong, take you out in the first round, nobody could withstand me. And Muhammad Ali, as cocky as he was, took the first round, dropped his own gloves, and let the man hit him every, with everything he had while he looked him in the face and said, is that all you have? He taunted the man, and the man tried harder and harder. He was so exhausted, Muhammad Ali dropped him in the second round with four punches. And the reason was the guy did everything he could. And in the end of it all, that man who was undefeated, if I remember correctly, prior to that point, now was defeated in every match after that because every person was determined that that man could go down. Though before that point, they were convinced he was undefeatable. Now, I don't know about you, but there will be in every sport, and might I say, in the sport of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, there are people set out there for the purpose of knocking you down, for trying to taunt themselves as undefeatable. So the media has the money. So the atheist has the, the popularity. So the scientist thinks they have a claim that tries to shut down Christianity. The bottom line is, no matter how much they taunt themselves as undefeated, beloved, Jesus is still the undefeated heavyweight champion of the world, and I serve him. And we need to recognize that. In basketball, it was the New York Knicks. Man, they would throw elbows. They would really hurt people. But in the finals, when you play them the way that they play, you recognize they had nothing to offer but violence. And it was, oh, that's the Chicago Bulls. That took them down as well. Because in the end of it all, they knew that was the way the game was going to be played. They didn't whine and howl. The bottom line is it isn't like you can look at the world's referees and say, hey, they're not playing fair. If you spend all your time doing that, you're going to lose the game because you're going to spend your whole time looking for the foul. Beloved, look it. It's going to be foul. Play the game. Because in the end of it all, the best statement you can make is win the game anyways. And you can. And that's what Paul was telling everyone. You can still win the game. Hey, so I'm in prison and I'm innocent. So they have no charge against me and I'm locked up. I am chained to Roman guards. Do you realize what that means? That means I have a captive audience to preach the gospel to. These, can't, these guys cannot escape. And if they start falling asleep on me, I can wake them up and say, hey, I'm not done yet. And they're like, oh, I got to get out of my shift. Or they're going to say yes. And the moment that guard says yes to Jesus and he gets released, he starts preaching the gospel to his entire troop. And then another guy comes in and Paul says, let me tell you about Jesus. And he says, I've already been told about Jesus. The guy that you were chained to last already told me. Do you see how that happens? And it happened, I want to remind you, because of one guy. One guy that was in chains for Christ and said, wow, well, this is a neat opportunity. And he'll say, you know what? The gospel's not chained. And what would it be like to be there and to go, wait a minute. This set on fire that guy. And look at where he's going. He's going to India. And look at this. This guy's heading the Silk Route towards China. The gospel's not chained because I am. Do you think the gospel rests on me? My goal is to be a bellow. And a bellow to fan into fire those little sparks in human hearts. Oh, beloved, listen as we wrap this around. Paul says in verse 25 that I've become a minister according to the stewardship from God. And there's so much I want to share, but for the sake of time and clarity, I've become a deacon according to the stewardship from God. And that word stewardship is that word oikonomos. This is the idea where Jesus is the house master and all of the resources of the father at his disposal. And he looks at Paul and he says, I'm giving you this stuff and sending you out, Paul. Go and do it. And it was given to me to fulfill the word of God. 
the mystery that has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. Now listen, all a mystery is in Scripture, hear me out, it's simple, is something that cannot be understood without the Holy Spirit. That's all it is. Now here's the problem. There are a lot of things in Scripture that are God calls mysteries, but it's not a mystery for anyone who has the Holy Spirit. I know this because that's exactly what we read, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 2.14 when he says, The natural or unsaved man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him and he can't know them because they're spiritually discerned. In other words, you can't even interpret something spiritual without the spiritual nature. And that spiritual nature comes from, from God himself. When I try to explain things to humankind, Without the Holy Spirit, they'll never understand these things. I didn't understand these things before I accepted Jesus. But the moment you say yes to Jesus, his Holy Spirit moves inside of you. It's as if everything were written in Italian, but you have no idea of Italian. But the moment you accept Christ, God perfectly gives you the gift of interpretation. Listen to this. In Mark 4, verse 11, it says, To you it has been known, has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a mystery, which means it won't be understood by unbelievers. In Romans chapter 11, verse 25, it tells us that there is another mystery, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. The idea of God playing for keeps and the fullness of the Gentiles will not be understood. By the unbeliever. And 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 51. Behold I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. But we shall all be changed. Christ's coming back and transforming us into his image. Is something the unbeliever will not be able to understand. In Ephesians chapter 5 verse 32. When he speaks of the glisten. The groom and the bride. And he says I tell you a mystery. I speak a great mystery but I speak concerning Christ and the church. The idea of Christ being the groom and the church being his bride makes no sense to the unbeliever. It tells us in Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, that Paul is asking for prayer, that God would open up the door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. And here, this mystery, in verse 26, it tells us, in chapter 1, verse 26, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And this is what it is. You ready? Christ in you. That is the most glorious of all mysteries. Is that Jesus doesn't, doesn't just live beside you or around you. He lives in you. And what persecution and suffering does is peels you back for the world to see Jesus. That's the point of it. We let ourselves go enough that Christ can be glorified. In other words, clearly seen. And he says, this is something the world's not going to understand. They do everything they can to avoid discomfort. They do everything they can to avoid this kind of misery. And yet the Christians run headlong into it, not because we're foolish, but because we know in it, Christ will be glorified. And the world would say, there is a real Jesus because I see him in you. And though they don't understand it, we do. And the reason we understand it is because it's a mystery. Isn't that a weird thought? The reason we get it is because it's a mystery. And because the Holy Spirit lives in us, and thus we understand it. So he says then, Verse 28 and 29, to wrap this up, to close it. Him we preach. Not that we preach, this we preach, this point, this doctrine, this movement, this liturgy. It's Jesus we preach. Warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect. And the word perfect just means mature or complete. Telias, it's the word when Jesus says tetelestai, paid in full, it's that comes this word is in it. That we would present every person grown up. Look at you accepted Jesus. My goal now is to say, I want you to grow up. I want you to complete this. You've said yes. It's the same way as saying, okay, you said I do at the altar. Now I want you to live like a married person to the point where you live the kind of life that is right for a married person. You were born again. You were born an infant. And it is my responsibility as the pedagogos, the, the tutor 
to grow you up, to become mature in Christ, to not be an infant in Christ. And part of growing up in Christ is saying, look at, take your hits for Christ. Don't avoid them. Run straight and run your pattern. That's part of my job as coach to say, look at, I don't want you just making the team. I want you playing the game. And I want you starring and starting and winning. And if that's the case, take your hits. Don't avoid them. Be the person Christ has called you to be. Because if you're going to be, you will inspire a nation to boldness. This nation says it's 55% Christian. I can't believe that. And if so, those that are the minority speak like the majority. But there is nobody standing up anymore and saying, I'm going to put this thing on. I'm going to put on my helmet of salvation and I'm going to get out there. But I want to. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present you grown up and mature and complete in Christ. And to this end, this is what Paul ends it with, I labor. And the word labor, by the way, kapiaho, means to fatigue, to work to exhaustion, striving. And the word striving is the word agonizizo, from the word agony. I agonize over this, working that which works in me so mightily. <coughs> Beloved, Paul is saying, I am going to work till I die over this. I'm going to sweat over this. I'm going to, man, when I drop, I drop from this. But I am not going to play this game namby-pamby. I am not going to do this thing just kind of, just without any form of passion. I'm going to give everything I have left. And if everything I have left drops, I do not want to, this body is just a jersey. And I'm wearing it for a very small period of time in the sight of eternity. And when I hand it to God, it's going to need to be retired because it's going to be used up. It's going to be tattered. Nobody's going to be able to get this jersey after me because I am going to make sure that it is full of grass stains and it is full of blood if it needs to be. But I'm going to play this game the way this game is meant to be played. And we don't play this game without with, with, in, living in constant fear. We play this game knowing at the end of it, I read the end of the book, we win, beloved, we win. And if we win, the question is, if we're going to be on the winning team, how close do you want to be to Jesus in the pitcher when we get the trophy? Man, I want to be one of his starters. Paul, I guarantee you, was one of his starters. I mean, shipwrecked and beaten and with rods and whipped and mocked and, and criticized and Paul says, I just want to know the power of Christ's resurrection. And how am I going to know it if I don't give everything? And there's no place in this for us to try to live the lust of this world for half the day or 90% of our week. And then come into this thing and hope that a bath is going to do it. And it's time for us to suit up and show up. Beloved, I can't think of a better message to start 2011 with than this one. Because Christ isn't looking for people that are to get, to get into heaven on a technicality. He's looking for people that are really ready to join the team and jump in. Don't present your bodies as instruments of unrighteousness. But man, when the trumpet's blown, show up and be ready. You join the, the service, beloved. You are a soldier. And that means something to him. And we are going to have communion. And as we have communion, listen, it tells us to not or eat or drink of these things unworthily. That's a big deal. The Bible goes as far as saying, if we eat this in an unworthy manner, we eat and drink condemnation to ourselves. I don't want that. Do you want that? Jesus gave everything at the cross, everything. And it tells us when we eat of this bread and drink of this, this juice, that we proclaim his death until he comes. Have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ? Have you accepted that simple statement? And here it is again. Christ died for your sins according to the scripture. He was buried and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Have you accepted Christ's death for your sins and his resurrection to offer you new life? 
I'm going to pray a prayer of recommitment. And I challenge every person to pray it with me. If you've not accepted Christ, let it be a prayer of commitment. If, it's, if you have accepted, recommit with me. That we would come and say, Lord, I give you everything. <coughs> Excuse me. That as we now partake of communion, we would do saying, saying, Lord, I want to give you everything. As we sang, I give you all. So let's take those elements and we'll bring them out now and we'll partake of them together. <coughs> Pray this prayer as, as this comes if you want to join me. Lord God, I recognize I'm a sinner. That's a no-brainer. And I also recognize, Jesus, you died according to, for my sins according to the Scriptures. You were literally buried. You literally rose again just on the third day, just like the scriptures promised. And I accept that gift on my behalf. I want to be absolutely pure, and not just positionally by your gift, but also practically in my life. And I want to live the kind of life that grows up right and matures properly, that comes to its end, its rightful end. And Lord, that I would be willing to take whatever shots, to be persecuted in whatever way, but to be bold the way you've intended. So Lord, have my life now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.